Welcome back to the Educating Alfie podcast. You'll be pleased to know that my New Year's resolution was to be consistent with the podcast. So hopefully uh, I should be releasing a few more podcasts in 2022. And for the first podcast, we have Dr. Jim Taylor from KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. Jim was the Director of Environmental Education for the Wildlife and Environment Society of South Africa, otherwise known as WESA, and has a lovely South African accent. Jim is involved in education programs both in Southern Africa and across the world. Now, the environment and climate change is very topical with lots of information out there, but the message doesn't still seem to quite be getting through. And there's actually little coverage on the education process itself. Um, So I'm intrigued to have an expert on the podcast who can help guide how we learn, but also how we teach. Uh, I can learn whether I'm doing this right. Uh, Jim has also done lots of practical work and action in communities, so hopefully he can share some actions to take forward, uh, as well as his expert knowledge with us today. Um, so I'm going to start this off a little bit differently than my normal podcast by saying, Sabona, Jim. Yeah, Sabona. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I'd like to ask you, um, what is the meaning of Ubuntu? Yeah, well, that's a brilliant question. And if it's all about educating Alfie, what better way to start? So Ubuntu is a beautiful term. It's very much Southern and Eastern African. And it really means somebody who cares about people. And um, I could say to my friends, which means there's a person who's full of Ubuntu. Ubuntu means he's with Ubuntu, which means he's public spirited. It also means that he loves people and he cares about people. And that's what makes Ubuntu such a a very, very beautiful term. You always put others first if you are imbued with the spirit of Ubuntu. So, man, Alfie, what a fantastic place to start your podcast. You know, um, I grew up with Isizulu speaking people Mm. and I learned such deep wisdoms that, um, and and have tried to honor those and tried to develop um, a quest for Ubuntu and myself. It hasn't always been successful, mm. but it's certainly been a wonderful trajectory to live one's life by. Yeah, well, it is a wonderful phrase, and I was really excited to, yeah, to ask that, to be honest. Um, the other kind of indigenous knowledge that I picked up in one of your papers um, was that people of the same age are considered brother or sister, uh, and parents are kind of more collective parents. Um, could you maybe expand on that or and other sorts of indigenous knowledge or phrases that are useful? Yeah, so it's also part of the deep wisdom of Africa. And although um, I live and work amongst Isizulu-speaking people, um, it's part of the Nguni family of languages. So these customs that I'm going to talk about now are not unique to Zulu, um, but you find the same customs in Isikosa, which was a language of primary language of Nelson Mandela, mm. you, um, es, es, um, Saswati, and other languages. Kiswahili in Eastern Africa is also an Nguni language. So in, this, in these customs, we say that somebody of my age, I should treat that person as my brother or my sister. If they're older than me, I should teach them, treat them as my father, even my grandfather. And if they're younger than me, I should treat them as my children. And if we remember these phrases, then no one would want to harm their mother or steal from their brother. So it it gives the whole community a sense of cohesion Mm. where these kinds of 
customs are remembered and practiced. And I just think it's it's too beautiful. And sadly, a lot of these traditional customs have been overwhelmed with colonialism, mm. with policies like apartheid, where people were seen as separate. And instead of learning each other's wisdom or the wisdom of indigenous knowledge, um, we just try and um, have some sort of hierarchy or ascendancy over people. And I just think that's awful. Um, and in some ways, sadly, it still lives us with us today. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's good to know that, you know, that those roots and those beautiful language still exist. I guess that kind of brings me on to there's traditional ideas of modernity and progress and change. Are there different, is there different vocabulary for what change and progress is in those languages? Yeah, well, um, we all need progress, but with it comes a paradox. Mm -hmm. So if the progress is bringing destruction to the world's life support systems, if progress means dams that that harm rivers, if progress means um, using loads and loads of fossil fuels and um, mining our fossil fuel legacy that's actually keeping us alive, then with the progress comes these shadow sides or the negative side of it. The other negative side is when indigenous knowledge and indigenous practices are are, are not respected and are not um, brought into progress. So I think we need progress, but I think we need it with a sense of mutual respect and a kind of honoring of the indigenous values that we could all learn from, indeed, especially in Africa, where there's such a rich cultural heritage um, wherever you go and whoever you meet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how do you think those values, or how do you see them, I guess, enacted uh, on the ground? You, you know, you often see them. And um, I've just been into the village now, and I went into an informal settlement. Mm-hmm. And by saying the term Solbona, which means I see you, which is a very warm greeting, Solbona, um, and if I see lots of people, I say sunny borna, which means hello to lots of people. And as soon as I greet people like that, everyone comes back with a smile and oh. asks me about myself. And I think very close to the surface, there's this um, richness of wanting to connect with people. And whether you're a white guy or you're t- speaking to a black person who may be unemployed and very poor, um, there is this sense of we can connect. And, and I just think that's too beautiful. And it, it's very evident in my daily life how many people are making these connections. Yeah, I think that's really special. Um, and does that, I, I'm interested because, you know, identity is quite a big thing in Western you know, politics and in Europe. Um, do you ever find a conflict in terms of your identity when you're kind of advocating for people of indigenous people, or um, is it more so that there's actually more of a, a collective kind of a different mindset entirely in terms of how we think about it? Yeah, you know, if if you aspire to an identity which is togetherness with people, mm-hmm. and you aspire to get to know people, whether you can speak their language or not, you can still have a a, a lot of mutual respect and. Uh, I think that overcomes the separateness. I mean, a, a phrase that rings in my ears all the times uh, comes from an- anthropology, and it says that people are more similar than cultures. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I just think that's too beautiful. You know, I've no doubt that in the middle of Russia and in the middle of Angola and in the middle yeah. of South America, there's a person just like me. They may not speak like I do. They may not even have a family like I do, but they're just like me. And they're more similar to me than the kind of stereotypical culture that um, we all put around us. And so, yeah, I think that sense of warmth for people, wherever they are, wherever they come from, when you get the sense of warmth rising or a sense of love, then, um, you know, to quote a cliche, then a stranger is just a friend you haven't met. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Well, such beautiful phrases. And I guess in terms of the like getting to that deeper level of connectedness, connectedness, do you need to do kind of further study or to read texts? Or do you think it's more of a just a, a human thing that we have within all of us that we can release, that sort of openness to other people? Well, that's a beautiful question. I, I think a sense of humanity is our birthright. <laughs> we're all born with it. And we're all born to love each other. Um, and we're all born to get along. And sometimes such as life that one forgets that or covers it over with a layer that sees myself as different or a layer of ego where I see myself as a bit special or um, I have certain aspirations. And those can then um, disconnect me from who I truly am. And then that interferes with my ability to relate to people. So when I speak of... um, the Isizulu phrase of people of my age or my brothers and sisters. I, I really, I really try and live that and I, I mean it, you know. And what has been absolutely remarkable is that in more recent years, I've been studying Sanskrit and the Vedic teaching of Northern India. And guess what? In Sanskrit is exactly the same custom. A um, person of my age is my brother, uh, a lady of my age is my sister. Hmm. And I can only think that the great um, civilization of um, the sort of Sanskrit era, which we're told goes back two, three, four thousand years, um, that that whole Indus Valley region down to the Red Sea somehow connected to the Kiswahili of Somalia and Kenya and filtered all the way down into the Isizulu we speak in South Africa. So for me, there's a a deep sense of unity that we are imbued with as we are born. And mm-hmm. if we taught that at schools or from our families or from our Isizulu friends, mm. then it brings out the sense of humanness or, or love for other. And um, huh. I just think that's absolutely too beautiful, really. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I think that's so important. Um, um, I think one of the, well, the first, in the first podcast episode, we had Dr. Judy MacArthur, um, from, uh, New Zealand and she spoke about the Maori indigenous knowledge connecting to nature and to rivers and mountains as well, which is that further step of connectedness. Yeah, um, I listened to that podcast and I thought it was absolutely stunning. Um, There were so many, I mean, we're talking about New Zealand, which is on the other side of the world, and yet how similar to South Africa. And you could say, well, um, you could look for differences and you'll find them. But if you look for similarities, you'll also find them. And there's a beautiful saying in Isizulu that when you go to drink water from a, a natural stream, you should only drink the water where you can hear it. So people say, oh, I'm going to the stream 
can you hear the water, then you can drink it. Now, many modern scientists said this is a myth or what is this, what is this story? But mm. if you study water, you find that um, where you can hear the water, it means it's bubbling over rocks, it's oxygenated, it's mm. more healthy than stagnant, dark, dank pools. So don't drink from the stagnant pool, drink from where you can hear the water. You know, and for me, wow. that's just a little, a little scientific um, fact that is valid. And um, it's just one of those customs that one gets from indigenous knowledge. And, and I, I think it helps us understand the nature around us. And of course, like the Maori traditions, the Isizulu traditions also have close links to, um, to nature and to the life support systems of air, water, soil, food. And so on. Yeah. 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 Well, it's really, it's just beautiful to hear these phrases because I, I confess I really don't know much about um, kind of these African heritage in terms of the, the language. And yeah, do you have any more Isisulu insights to share, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they, they're everywhere, which is the most encouraging thing. And, um, you know, we, we say an Isisulu, um, Umuntu, ungomuntu, ungabantu. And what that really means is umuntu means a person. Um, ngabantu means of people and that he's only a person because of other people. So in other words, no person is an island. We are only who we are because of others and mm. no one can survive on their own. Of course they can't. But if you remember that you are only given your birthright and your humanity because of other people, then this term, mm. um, it really has a beautiful ring about it. And the other feature of it is that Isizulu is one of the few languages in the world that has actually spoken poetry. So all the words you use must rhyme with the noun and they must be in concordance with the noun. So wow. um, it makes the language technically quite complicated. But when you hear a Isizulu-speaking person it's just spoken poetry. It's just too beautiful to listen to. And I, I can never get tired of listening to Isizulu and, and seeing how the, 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 the terms connect with each other. And, and those terms also, if we allow them to, connect with nature and the nature around us. So in Isizulu language, there are many words for, for cows and for animals and for rivers and for trees. There's such a richness of words that go way beyond the numbers of words we might have in the English language, mm. for example. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. Um, and it does sound very rhythmical when you kind of say the language. It's almost like a little song uh, when it's spoken, which is, yeah, very just obviously easy and amazing to listen to. Um, so in terms of like you've worked from, you've worked with people from all around the world, um, have you found that there's ways in which these kind of different people with different histories and cultures can add uh, other um, things to each other to gain more knowledge. But also, is there any sort of frictions as well between different areas of the world? Yeah, the friction is, is very evident. And of course, the colonial era um, did enormous harm to building unity amongst people. And I can also see the friction coming in education. So, for example, if you believe you are a well-educated person, and you're about to educate the other, then your education tends to have a, a sort of a top-down hierarchy of I know best. 
And here I am educating people. And it must have been very easy for those colonial times for the Europeans to have quite a um, quite a high regard for their knowledge. They assumed they were better educated, more civilized. And so the education orientation tended to have teach the other was tending to be top down. Whereas today we've learned that you learn much more through um, deliberation, through collaboration, through learning together. And sure, colonial people might have brought loads of facts that were valuable to Africa. But um, if there's not the mutual respect, then you don't have a, a joint learning process. So for me, the early environmental education that was very much centered on how do we change the others as our target groups. I mean, a target group is from the military mm. and you set up a target so that you can kill people in the military paradigm. Isn't it um, sad that that was co-opted into the some some education programs to get to the target group? And for me, it was never like that. Well, um, we learned, shall we say, together we learned to overcome that sense of targeting others or getting at others. A much more um, open process of what can I learn from people that I'm meeting. Um, they may not have gone to school. They may not be able to speak English. Um, I know they probably have a much richer quality of uh, understanding and maybe even life than, than I have. Um, and, and where this comes home to roost is often the people that are seeking to get the messages across often have a very high carbon footprint. They fly in airplanes, they drive cars, mm. they, they eat um, um, foods that have a high carbon footprint. And if they could only recognize that often poorer people may be living much more gently on the planet, yeah. and perhaps they could learn from them, then, um, then the learning becomes more of a, sort of inclusive mutual process and so that overcomes the frictions that that you allude to you know yeah yeah i think that seems to have quite profound implications for um i think just the way we do science in terms of it's like cause and effect and we try and understand one thing or one individual um if it's more of a kind of like a mutual uh like a com combination of uh, just an interaction of ideas that sounds a lot more complex and potentially quite hard to study uh and to uh yeah to learn from yeah it in it seems more complex and yet the more you do it the easier it comes you know and so we often speak of deliberation as a key component of learning and it's a very beautiful word because you it has a deliberate intent. So we want to learn more about each other or more about the planet. So it's mm -hmm. deliberate. Um, the middle of the term is liberate. Through our dialogue, we can liberate each other if we share um, our anxieties, concerns, many of which are of our own or simply in our own minds. And then Libra, um, which um, is to weigh up. It's the Latin to weigh up. So in the middle of that deliberation, we weigh up our understandings with each other and we can liberate ourselves from misconceptions and and um, and beliefs we hold that perhaps aren't very valid. And for me, a key part of learning is just is that um, you know I I was brought up to think it was a good idea to have a motor car. Mm. Um, um, maybe in Africa, if you had lots of money, everybody wants to buy a motor car. Well, to unlearn that view and find out that it's more healthy to ride around on a bicycle 
or to share transport with others. Mm. You know, so it's only through deliberation that these kinds of aha moments come about, you know. Yeah, well, thank you for breaking down that word for me. I really enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, I was actually going to ask you, um, from a Europe, European perspective, unlearning has become uh, more on the agenda uh, as well as in that part of learning. Uh, and I guess that has a disruptive element to it. You know, you're sometimes wrong about things, so that can be hard for people. Um, but obviously, you're saying it's very important to do that. Yeah, and I mean, one of the exciting areas and research on education is what we call transgressive learning. You know, so transgressive learning is where you transgress normality. You you you're trying things out that are not are not in the are not in the public norm. Mm. And um Bishop Desmond Tutu, who's a famous South African yes. person, sadly passed on earlier this month. Um, um he in, as an archbishop in 2014 said that um, we should not be using fossil fuels, not for anything. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know, in 2014, that's a very transgressive statement. And even the even the, the formal church was saying, you know, is this man a radical? <laughs> How can he say he shouldn't be using fossil fuels? And yet now, you know, eight years on, mm-hmm. it's become the norm. So by being transgressive, he was able to um, – learn a different way of living more gently on the planet. And um, so, yeah, so it could be a conflict or it could be a way of doing things that is more meaningful, a little bit deeper, um, building these, building better relationships, perhaps. Yeah. Relationships with each other, but also with the planet. You know. Which, you know, I didn't describe as complex, but it's also very natural. That is how human beings work. We're constantly interacting and responding to stuff. So, yeah, it does... Interfit. Yeah, I mean, perhaps my best quote from Nelson Mandela was when he said that um, people can be taught to hate. And we see that everywhere. Mm. But people can be taught to love. So <laughs> if they can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love. And since love is a more natural part of the human psyche, then yeah. it's much easier to teach people <laughs> to love. You know, So, I mean, that is a super positive way of going about living, you know. It is. It's wonderful. So do you think, because there, there'll be some people out there who think, you know, um, maybe a bit nihilistic, what's the point? People are intrinsically bad and selfish and stuff like that. Um, how how are you sure that, you know, it's love that powers us or is the most important factor? Well, I think that um, there's absolutely no doubt that it's love that the... the in the Sanskrit language, we taught that love is the only true emotion. So um, whether you believe that or not, you only have to approach somebody with love in your heart and see how far you get. You know, whether you're going to the corner corner shop to buy to buy a fizzy drink or to buy, buy a beer from a bar, if you go in with love in your heart and a smile, see how far you get in your transaction. But if you go in pessimistic thinking the whole world's against me and, um, you know, everybody's miserable and that's their true nature, well, that's the world you'll encounter. And, um, yeah, love, love, some say love is the natural in-between. So if I look at a stranger and I, I think love is the natural in-between between us, then there's more chance of a connection happening. And um, that's just too beautiful. Um, also in the early Vedic teaching um 
it is said that um, water is the physical manifestation of love. And in the physical universe, um, you'll have water, but it's actually love. And if you think about it, water holds everything together in a physical sense. It, it holds yeah. together our bodies, holds together matter. Um, yeah, so, and we, we have love as the natural sort of spiritual um, basis within us. And when yeah. I meet somebody who's angry or cross, um, it's much more useful to see that as a layer that they've put over themselves, um, a layer covering up their potential of love. Mm -hmm. And one day they'll overcome that layer and take it off and allow their natural love to come shining through. One day that'll happen. Uh, one would hope sooner rather than later. <laughs> and when I see myself having these layers over me, layers of um, doubt, fear, mm. aggression, anxiety, then I can see those as simply layers that I can learn to 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 remove and um, allow my natural love to come shining through because oh. that's what it's that's what it's there for. <laughs> yeah, I think my. Personal experience is that I was working as a healthcare worker, as a physiotherapist um, in the NHS for the last couple of years. And it was essentially the healing happens when you empower people and you give them the confidence in themselves and the trust um, to be able to, you know, have action to remove that doubt and peel back those layers, as you're saying. Um, yeah, which is, I, I've seen that on the ground, which is great. It's brilliant. Um, in terms of, you know, water as the being the in-between and being love um i think that's a brilliant idea maybe it's not such a good idea now that water is quite scarce in the world um but you know of course water comes in flows and processes so um if we see love in that way then it can be renewed and empower us all i guess what i was going to ask is actually you said that you know people can eventually come back to that, that state of love that's within them um People would say, you know, the climate crisis is now. It's very urgent. Um, can we afford to wait for people to become loving and connected? Or do we just have to, you know, make the action happen? What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, a life with a world without laws and a world without the police um, would probably be awful. Um, so I do think we need the laws that, and we should learn to abide by them. And, and if people don't abide by them, there have to be consequences. Um, otherwise, um, when our egos run right, we would um, live in a way that is to the detriment of our neighbors. Mm. And, and a very practical example of that is if I'm a farmer and I use up all the water that flows through my farm, then my neighbor downstream is going to suffer. So what right have I to cause the suffering of my neighbor? I need to farm my farm in a way that I release enough water so that he can farm his farm. And that is a natural law as well. Um, and it's certainly an indigenous custom that you don't own the water that flows through your farm. So mm -hmm. you shouldn't pollute it and you shouldn't um, do something that will harm others. So as we say, there's always someone who lives downstream um, and that in itself is a, is a truism. So um, if, if, if you have laws and people abide by them, that's a good thing. But there's another feature of this that I think is even more important, and it's a kind of self-control. So you could say that the laws provide social controls to all of us, 
and mm-hmm. we should observe them. But for me, self-control is where people choose to act for the common good because they've learned that it's in their in the best interests of society and it's in actually in their own best interests to to act um, with self-control uh, as opposed to just the controls that are imposed on us by society or nature or the environment. Many of, yeah, many of our um, of our education programs are drawing on this idea of developing self-control as a way of doing the right thing, not just for my personal benefit, but for the benefit of the people around me and um, those who live downstream, if you like. <laughs> yeah, I read some of your research about self-constraint, which I assume is kind of like kind of what you're describing there. It's it's interesting because, you know, sometimes uh, laws can be, uh, if they're, you have your land and your area and your entitlement to certain things, they can seem quite selfish. Um, but I think probably beliefs and networks are in a way almost stronger in some cases. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, one of the common features of indigenous peoples worldwide has been that land isn't owned by individual. It, it can't be owned in truth. Um, and we should be sharing the land as we share the air we breathe and the water we drink and so on. So it, 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 it was a colonial feature in Africa that um, put boundaries around land. And it was that same forces that put boundaries around countries. And in many cases, those political boundaries separated families, separated tribes, and it was awful. And um, yeah, so they kind of imposed boundaries. And we forget that um, people are our neighbors, even if they live in a different country, speak a different language. And um, we could do better to learn that, um, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Definitely. Um yeah, so in terms of just the environmental education things that you do, I'm intrigued as to the difference between environmental education and envi- uh, and education for sustainable development. Um, could you maybe elaborate on the difference between those two and what they are? Yeah, I mean, it it historically it came about that um, for some people, environmental education was going outside to learn about nature, and obviously that's important. Whereas um, education for sustainable development had a broader view. It includes the social issues, the political issues, the economy, and it, in, in, it, it, it had that strong sustainability um, emphasis. So for some people, it was a broader view. For me, they're pretty much the same, and they really are a quest for relevance um, so that the learning is relevant to ourselves and our future. Mm-hmm. And they all bring about a more sustainable way of living on Earth and um, we're learning now more than ever that um, if we don't live more sustainably, then we don't have a very pleasant future. And many people now are suffering because of unsustainable practices um, all around the world. And uh, more is the pity, you know. So, um, you know, whether it's air pollution or water pollution, it's it's harming people. And sadly and tragically, it's often the poorer people that suffer the most. Mm. Whereas the rich people who are often the cause of most of the large-scale damage, mm-hmm. the large-scale climate change damage or the large-scale water pollution and air pollution, it's the big, uh, it's more the richer people whose lifestyles bring about that, those kinds of risks. And then it's the poorer people who can't afford 
the air conditioners or to move to different places to avoid air pollution or whatever. And so it's a it's a sort of travesty in our times that um, the lifestyle choices of the rich are having a, a detrimental effect on, on poorer people. Um, and we may not think we're rich, but anyone who, who drives in a car, anyone who has a bank account is a rich person, um, uh, materially anyway. Mm. <laughs> yes, definitely, which is an interesting idea of richness. But yeah, I heard that a lot. I went to COP26 and um, you realize just how unjust it is in terms of the most vulnerable being affected. Uh, and it's really quite shocking and sad, those impacts that are already happening now at the moment. Um, so do you think we have kind of net zero policy in the UK and we have sustainability, but do you think that that perhaps is too bro- too narrow a scope it's it's not sustainability of everything and uh, doesn't contain social dynamics that you know we've spoken about so far in this podcast. Yeah, I mean sustainability is often seen in quite a narrow way, and if it doesn't include a sense of humanity, um, if it isn't attending to economic issues um, and political issues, then it is probably too narrow. And um, we're working with a very exciting project in India. And it's called handprints. Um, and maybe by sharing it, 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 it makes sense because our footprint is the kind of damage we have on the planet. And a young lady in India, um, aged about 14 years old, Sherja, she, she said, um, I'm tired of negative worry about the footprint. I'd like to dedicate my life to handprints of hope. And, um, a handprint for her became a sustainability action that anyone could take. So it could be a local practice or whatever. So we've developed a, a handprint education program, and it it steers us towards uh, the positive things we can do, um, rather than just be fearful and negative and doubtful about all the climate change risks. A handprint can be a, a symbol of hope, symbol of the practices that we can engage with to live a life that's a little bit less detrimental um, on the planet. Yeah, I think that's that's great. And actually, that chimes in quite well with my last podcast guest, Dimitri Zenghelis, who uh, talked about the need for sort of a positive, um, like a, a green growth, but framed in a positive sense for people to get on board with that. Um, I, I'm just curious of your um, perspective on green growth and growth, and also maybe um, incorporating the idea of how some developing countries like South Africa can leapfrog. Yeah, so maybe the term that I think means a lot now is the idea of a just transition. Mm-hmm. So we have to have a transition to a better way of living. There's absolutely no question about it. I mean, everyone would agree that we're not living um, on this planet in a wise way and that our lifestyle choices are harming the world around us. So we need to have a transition, but it needs to be just. And just could mean helping those people who have made their livings out of mining coal or living off fossil fuels. How do we develop a just transition so that they have a, they can develop a sense of well-being and a career that is beneficial to um to themselves and the lifestyle choices they choose. Mm. So I think just transitions are very, very important. 
Um, and it is becoming an imperative globally at the moment. And I'm just very grateful that, um, you know, people are realizing that we have to have these transitions. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's got to, I think it's got to be at the core of uh, a transition. It has to be just. Uh, in terms of um, what we were just talking about there with um, a way forward and a, a positive vision, uh, I know you've also spoke about or written about um, going from what we do now and kind of moving on with that. Uh, I'm intrigued as to, you know, how we could perhaps take the best bits of um, science and technology and also the best bits of the social cohesion and indigenous knowledges and respect for nature and maybe put them together for something that's really wonderful uh, in the future. So perhaps what do you think about that? And also um, the, I hate to bring it up, but the kind of like the metaverse and the virtual world and data, do you think that has anywhere to play in, in the future uh, as, as you see it based on this histories? Yeah, very much so. I mean, we do a lot of work in citizen science, which is sharing science so people can engage with the issues and risks around them. So citizen science is an important component of technology and data. And, um, you know, if we use data wisely, we can make much better informed decisions. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm pretty enthusiastic about good science but science that's respectful of people and doesn't ride roughshod over them. So a more humanity-centered science, I think, is really, really a good idea, uh, um, as well as a science that's respectful of indigenous knowledge science um, and the history and the traditions that, that we grow up with. So um, maybe taking the wisdom of the past and linking it to the wisdom of the present and the technologies that are around us that can help us understand the world a little bit better so that the choices we make are better informed. Um, yeah, but to go back to the beginning, um, that idea of a sense of humanity or Ubuntu, where that can inform um, what we do, the science we engage in, the way we work together as people, then it will be much better for everybody than if we do it as a, simply a technocratic um, sort of approach, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to just kind of going on from that, talk about, you know, science communication. Obviously, the big recent case study is the COVID pandemic. Um, how have you felt that as an expert in kind of, you know, engagement and, and learning, how do you think that's been in South Africa? I don't know too much about it and maybe more broadly as well. Yeah, the, the COVID has been a, been a, a huge issue. I'm sure it's affected more people's lives than any other single event um, in the last hundred years, perhaps. Um, so, and we're trying to get to grips with it. And um, it's very difficult. You know, there's so many conflicting opinions and so on. Um, generally, I think South Africa's done very well. Um, I'm in admiration of how the authorities have dealt with it, how the Ministry of Health has dealt with it. And, um, you yeah, so it's been very well managed um, in many respects. Uh, I'm sure it could have been better, but um, in South Africa, uh, um, I've been very impressed. And in some ways, it's brought people together. You know, whether people are rich or poor, we all suffer from this um, common affliction. And so we need to deal with it together. So it's not just a disease of the rich or a disease of the poor. So in a way, it can, it can unite people. Um, yeah. I'm not so sure. I mean, there was 
uh, huge concerns about um, how the virus would spread, particularly in a country with where many people are HIV positive. Mm. And yet, in some ways, maybe the fact that so many people are taking antiretrovirals has helped protect them from different viruses. I, I can't say I'm not a medical person. Yeah. But, um, it's very interesting. And if you make choices for the benefit of humanity rather than just for an individual, often those choices would, would also be better. Interesting interesting times we live in. And you know, learning to cope with um, uncertainty is a key way of learning. So we live in an unpredictable world and learning to cope with uncertainty and risk is a healthy way of doing things. There's no one answer ever. And um yeah, it's it's a much broader view than that. Yeah, I think that's important. You know, the complexity and the nuance of issues um, should be explained to people. People uh, shouldn't assume to be stupid and unable to understand it. Um, but kind of just, yeah, moving on from that slightly in terms of climate change, I'm intrigued to know, do you think, say, with COVID and with climate change, people sometimes believe the wrong information? Uh, things that aren't true because they're online in conspiracy theories or uh, maybe they have a breakdown of trust in traditional sources, etc. Um, do you think we should be more focused on people's concerns about climate change and how they think, or we should be focusing on, you know, what the concerns really are in the science, or maybe we should be doing both? <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, one, it's helpful to break the world, the word down. So we speak of communication. And everybody's trying to communicate something to everybody else. And the media and advertising and consumerism is so full of um, persuasion. It's trying to persuade you to drink Coca-Cola, go skiing in Austria, or whatever media puts at you. And people have learned to disbelieve the, the communication they're receiving. So that means when a big crisis comes like... COVID or um, climate change, they disbelieve it as well. And, and for me, the root of the word communication is community. And if you have community with someone, you're much more likely to believe them. You're much more likely to engage with their ideas than if you are communicated at. So for me, the secret is in building the relationships. And you could say time's running out, but in a way, if if um, time is never running out for building community and and engaging meaningfully with maybe fewer people, but in a in a powerful way that goes deeper and is much more learningful than simply sending messages at people. And that goes back to the theme in the beginning of the podcast of education for them, as opposed to education for us, uh, where we can all learn together. And I think the community part of communication is about uh, all of us learning together. And um, so in our education programs, we try to build community rather than get the right messages across to people. Like an advertising campaign, it's much more about building relationships and, and respecting other people's views so they can be engaged with times, um, challenged, and then maybe even overturned. But, but you usually don't overturn somebody's idea unless they respect you or you have community with them. Mm. And then the sky's the limit. If you respect someone, you're likely to hear what, they, what they're saying and maybe change your perspective. That's so very interesting. Yeah. 
So it's like persuasion actually isn't the first thing. It's not getting the message across initially. It's building that trust, building that relationship. And then, you know, it's kind of like a later stage even in the process. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I really like that point of view. And I guess maybe the issue is that with social media and online, it's very difficult to have a relationship or communication with someone who is uh five four six seven three and has no profile and is sending you a message that you don't understand or is irritating you yeah absolutely and you only have to look at social media to see how people are reacting to being treated like numbers and and the sense of humanity goes out of it that's really unfortunate yeah 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 so i think um that's a great takeaway you know from this um, in terms of yeah, just listening and engaging with people. Um, and I guess that comes from also having a trust in other people as well, which leaves you a bit vulnerable. You've got to kind of believe that you don't know everything and people have things to offer you, which is sometimes a difficult process to do. Um, could you maybe just, I think we've covered loads and loads of stuff. It's been really interesting. Could you maybe end with talking about uh, an example of this or a case study on the ground where you've seen these processes happen and the outcome um, of what's what's going on? Yeah, there, there's so many examples where where this develops. And if you believe in yourself, um, it's much easier to connect with other people. But if you doubt yourself, then you'll doubt everybody. So um, building people's confidence, um, as you put it earlier, is just of paramount importance. And, and that means focusing on on the good things they're doing and the strengths of what they're trying to do. And in a way, everybody is trying to do the right thing. Even a, even a thief or a murderer feels that the course of action he's on about is the best thing for him at that or her at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, it might be hugely misguided and lead to unfortunate consequences, but that's the space they're in. So, I mean, we, we work very closely in a, in a local community. And um, as people get older, many of them look forward to retiring. And I work with a friend, his name is Baba Tele, and he's now in his late 60s. And he says he's proud now to work for the benefit of his community for the rest of his life. Um, he doesn't see it as retirement. He doesn't huh. earn a salary. But he says he gets much more satisfaction when the things he does is to the benefit of others than um, if he was simply earning a salary or something. So uh, there's a situation where instead of looking for a a retirement where he's putting his feet up and um, sitting at home, he's saying, what can he do that'll be for the benefit of his community with whatever skills he has? And he's doing a superb job. So there's an individual who I have enormous respect for because of how he's living his life and benefit of others. If you like, he's living out Ubuntu in, mm. in his life. Lovely. What does he do? What are some of the things he's doing to put that into practice? Well, we're certainly um, involved in lots of educational programs, not only taking people outdoors and um, introducing them to the environment, but looking at how they understand the the, the natural resources that um that keep people alive. So how can we study a river together? How can we study a stream together? How do we study air pollution? And um, how do we overcome it? And and what choices can we make that might be 
in the better interests of the future, which could mean reducing our dependency on fossil fuels um, and um, doing something in a climate change, positive climate change direction. So, so yeah, there are many examples. Um, I mentioned the handprint resource, and along with the handprint comes the term CARE, C-A-R-E, and that acronym stands for um, the C is concern for others. Um, the A is attention to needs or attending to needs. The R is respect for each other. And the E is engagement for the common good. So for me, that's a beautiful acronym for a good education campaign. And where people remember those terms, then hopefully they kinder to each other and they kinder to the planet. When you introduced me, you mentioned WESA, the Wildlife Environment Society of South Africa. Um, I'm now um, I'm an honorary life member of WESA. I don't practice as the director of environment education full time anymore, but I work very closely with WESA and their staff. And that is my privilege. It, it's, it's not so much a retirement as being still part of that role that you mentioned, mm. um, may not be in a formal sense. And um, yeah, I just think it's an absolute privilege to have grown up in a situation where as one gets older, one can be proud and pleased to play a, a very small part, part or a small role in, in practicing these principles that we speak of and that you've uh, elucidated so nicely and do so, so well in your podcast. So thank you very much indeed. Do you want to just say a little bit more about WESA, actually, just to maybe explain a bit about what WESA is and what it does? That'd be great. Yeah, well, WESA is an NGO, a non-government organisation. Mm. Believe it or not, it's been going for close to 100 years. It's wow. certainly one of the oldest NGOs in Africa, if not the world, um, that is concerned about the environment and um, the living more sustainably. So um, it's close to its 100th year anniversary, and um, that will be celebrated in a couple of years' time. It was founded in um, 1926, and we're approaching 2026 and wow. four years' time. So, um, yeah, and we were amazed to fi find out that the Wildlife Society of India was also founded in 1926. How's that <laughs> for a little bit of synergy in these times. We have, anyone can join WESA, the Wildlife Environment Society of South Africa. Anyone can join, become a member and either play a membership role or help with fundraising, help with running projects um, and trying to do something to help everybody live more sustainably, whether it's through scientific knowledge, sharing, educating, whatever. Um, it's like, an organization that's designed to strengthen the fabric of humanity wow. is seeking to um, make the world a more sustainable place. And uh, I just think that's too beautiful. Yeah. I think that is exactly, you know, the path we need to be on. Uh, and so, yeah, amazing. Um, yeah, incredible organization. And I actually get a lot of hope um, when I see non-governmental organizations, maybe governments a bit less so, um, but NGOs seem to be doing a lot. And there's a lot of people who are really passionate and you're obviously connected to people all over the world who are interested and care, uh, care in your sense of the world as, uh, as well. No, that, that's that's right. And it's, it's becoming a worldwide trend. And um, I, I'm very optimistic about the future and especially the recent developments in 
climate change, whether it's um, COP26 in Glasgow, where more and more people are picking up the momentum. There's no doubt. And mm-hmm. even world political leaders, they are less and less naysayers. And, um, you know, you hear less and less from climate skeptics, just as um, many years ago, there were people who said that tobacco smoking was good for you. Um, there have been media campaigns that said tobacco was good for your health and good for your 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 lungs and your chest and you know and and a lot of people that's what they believed and um, today it's a great thing that so many people have realised the risks that our planet faces and are working in a, a positive way. It might be small, might be small scale, but at least they work in a positive way to. Um, to make lifestyle choices that are better for the planet and better for the future and therefore better for the people who come after us, which is which is wonderful. <laughs> and I think uh, under the, the very small bracket would be this podcast and what I'm aiming to do here. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And what's so beautiful about it is it's about educating Alfie and um, hopefully you learn something as every podcast you make, and I've no doubt you do, but that in itself represents a different way of learning. It's not Alfie educating the world about climate change. It's Alfie learning together. And how much more do people warm to what you're saying when you're engaging with them in this way? And I just think that is, it's an inspirational title for your podcast. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. I wasn't fishing for compliments, but I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I think. Well, it's been, yeah, it's been really uh, enjoyable uh, and great to have people like you on the podcast who are so knowledgeable uh, and experts. So, yeah, without people like you and me, Vosper leaders. So we've got the mutual synergy here. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you, everybody who's helping. It's wonderful. Oh, yes. Well, yeah, hopefully it can all keep on, keep on going and grow. Um, definitely. Yeah, I really appreciate uh, Thank you very much, Jim. It was a really great conversation. Bye-bye and go well. And hamagase, as we would say in Isisulu, means go well. It's more than just, you know, than goodbye. It's hamagase. You've got a lovely light manner of um, the way you go about it. And, you know, you've got to trust the moment. Um, and the moment will always be where the wisdom is, not the pre, pre-recorded stuff, you know. And we could have spent months trying to plan the meeting, and it, it, it probably wouldn't have been as good. Um, and perhaps you know this, but again, to go back to my Sanskrit interest, in mm. Sanskrit, the word for wisdom is wheat, and the word for wit or humor is wheat. <laughs> Sanskrit, wisdom and a sense of humor are together because you, you, it, you, a joke or something that's funny is always in the moment. You can't pre-plan it. And a wise person always lives in the present as well. So wit and humor go together. And I just think there's some sort of meaning in that, you know. So, yeah, so the spontaneous discussion, um, trusting the moment and being enthusiastic about it is, is a lovely way to do things. Mm-hmm.